and welcome back to another Dishcast. As I said, we're on a roll these days. And one of the books that I read a couple of years ago, actually, in researching the opioid epidemic and also just in trying to understand the crisis, the spiritual, intellectual, emotional crisis that seems to be all over the country. One of the books that most was most helpful was a book called Dreamland by Sam. And here I should ask you, Sam Quinones? How do you, how do you pronounce right, Quinones? Correct. Okay, I did it right. Good. Quinones. <laughs> Quinones. Uh, Dreamland, which was really a fascinating description of how both the opioid epidemic began with pills, how it then was shaped through a very simple form of heroin, the way that the distribution network was transformed into something much more convenient and consumer-friendly, the way in which this could be hidden from so many people for so long, and the sheer scope of its toll in the American heartland especially took a long time for most of us to absorb an act. And Dreamland is a fantastic, if you want a good summary of how, how this actually came about, it's a really good start. And the second book that Sam has brought out the least of which I presume is a is a is a reference to the Jesus, <laughs> at least something that Jesus once said. True tales of America and hope in a time of fentanyl and meth also takes us up to the present day and also helps understand why this is not just an opioid epidemic that we are confronting. It has also been merged with and in some cases may be overtaken by crystal meth, a drug again that we don't, I think, see enough discussion about or can see even when it's right in front of our faces. So I'm, welcome, I'm delighted to welcome Sam Quinones, who is the author of those two books and has helped me much better understand the world of drugs, to the Dishcast. Thank you, Sam, for coming. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show. You're so welcome. I want to start with a very simple experiment that you describe in the book, which is the simplest form of addiction in a way, and it's uh, sugar water and rats. You give rats two options sure. of water that has a uh, little sugar in it and water that's not. And will you describe what happens? Well, very quickly, they they come to prefer the, the sugar water over the regular water, which was a kind of a revelation at the time, I think, that, that neuroscientists were studying. This was 20 plus years ago, actually. And they came to, this was part of a series of, of, of experiments that I write about in the book that took place at, at Princeton. And in in what was in the, actually the psychology department, because neuroscience really had not developed into its own you know, body of its own discipline per se. And they were trying at this one lab in uh, run by a, a neuroscientist named Bart Hobel to understand the effects of food and how food could be addictive. And they were starting with sugar and they began to just test rats who were sh that were sugar dependent. They made sugar dependent the way you would test for cocaine and heroin and alcohol and, and all that. And, and what they found, they found a number of fascinating things, I, th I thought. I was just fascinated. I spoke with the lead graduate student who is now herself uh, a leading neuroscience, Nicole Ovina, in, in, in the world of neuroscience. And, and they were just trying to test symptoms of addiction. C can we you know what happens when we when we when we take it away you know what happens when we take uh sugar water away and give them another drug will they will they go for that and so what what they came to understand was that our brains are are highly susceptible to 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 addiction of course and that that our foodstuffs there are foodstuffs in this case sugar 
that, that can create the same effects, perhaps less intensely, but nevertheless the same effects as, say, heroin or cocaine or that, yeah, amphetamine or that kind, that kind of thing. Primarily, that's because they give a little dopamine hit, that pleasure that we feel when we taste something sugary for the first time is like, ah. And of course, this is also rooted in evolutionary biology and the fact that for most of our existence, the possibility of a sweet thing was very rare. And when you came across it and found it like a, a pot of honey or something, you were just gorged. It was so amazing. But now that we have access to everything, now the technology has allowed us to fulfill every desire we want, essentially, we've created a buffet exactly. of incredibly addictive substances that... Uh, we can't seem to get out of. So now we have a problem in some ways of plenty and capitalism. I mean, yes. I just, in some ways, what you're, what you're describing is how capitalism being such an incredibly powerful tool for making money has figured out actually the most effective, what well, has been long true, most effective kind of capitalism is selling addictive products because they keep coming back. And right. hence- and, and I, and I yeah. It's the food revolution exactly. where what we've done for a couple of generations is eat sugar. And lo and behold, we have an obesity epidemic. But, and we can't seem to say no to it. The, 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 the something is overriding our frontal cortex with this, the need for dopamine. And that would go for, right. that would go for other products like social media, obviously, is one of the, the big things. Anything else that gives us a quick dopamine hit? I was, the, the other day, I, was, I, mean, I play Angry Birds before I go to bed. It's Angry Birds is, is this game that creates all these various prizes and ridiculous things for killing pigs, basically, with birds. It's a child's game. But it's incredibly sophisticated, actually, the way. Anyway, I do it to go to sleep at night, is it? But I've realized when I started it, why am I paying anything for this? What am I doing? And then all these phony, phony prizes you get and all these sudden rewards you get, which are meaningless. And then eventually they started asking me for a little bit of money yeah. to get those rewards. And, and I, before I realized they were fucking draining money out of me just to play this game. They had trained right. me to love those moments when, oh, a whole bunch of prizes just emerged. Goody. And I wanted more of it, even though it meant nothing. <laughs> so when I was reading your book, I right. was like, everybody's on Angry Birds, essentially. They yeah. don't realize it, but we are completely compelled. And of course, then right. when capitalism comes along it's, with it's, super amazing addictive products, we're even more compelled. That, that's, that, that's, and the other question is, do we ever get satisfied with this stuff or does it constantly ratchet up our need for more? No, I don't think we do. That's the whole point. That pleasure, this is not happiness. We have this. Uh, we have this idea that that pleasure is happiness or something. You know, we have we have confused the two. And pleasure comes from taking. The c pleasure comes alone. Pleasure, you know, happiness comes from giving. From from being with with others. There's a whole other dynamic to happiness that we have confused with with pleasure. And pleasure is the you know that's why you you go shopping. Uh, you get a new iPhone and it feels really great for about three hours or three days. And then it just it it fades. It's 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 something that you don't get from from being with other people or achieving. Achievement is what gives you happiness. Fulfillment it comes from 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 having achieved something in in life or in in your work or in your family or what have you. It it it, it seems like we have an entire section of our capitalist economy. It's enormous that is has figured out pleasure, how to confuse pleasure with 
with happiness. Happiness, of course, is and a, and and is, you see this just more, much harder thing to achieve than pleasure. I mean, pleasure can be directly marketed, and you can give someone something that will mainly, overwhelmingly, yes. most people give them pleasure. But but the serenity that comes with living a happy life or a, a controlled or moderated life is is lacking. I mean, this is yes, and I think yeah. I, I frankly think one of the things that my my parents did very very well is is to give us experiences, not stuff. You know, we never had a lot of stuff when I grew up middle class, but we never had a lot of stuff. However, I had music lessons. We went on vacation to the beach and to to the to the to the mountains. We read. We had lots and lots of books around. We had guitars and piano. You know, it was it was it was a childhood based on on experience and that kind of thing and not having whatever the latest stuff was. And I think what's happened is that we now have a culture in which a certain segment of our economy that is quite large has figured out that if they keep prodding that pleasure button in whatever way their product happens to do that, that we will never stop coming back from, you know, we will hit that pleasure thing for all. And that's why, for example, the fast food companies, uh, Wendy's and, and McDonald's and other places, Taco Bell, use actually the language of addiction. This will trigger your cravings. You'll, you know, th these kinds of, this kind of language, they understand this extraordinarily well. They are, have a huge amount of money and a huge amount of intellectual capital that they can devote to figuring out how to prod that part of our brain, our brains, plural, into, into just compulsively wanting this stuff. And that was part of what I got into with, with, with the least of us because I'd spent so much time thinking and, and, and interviewing and researching about the way drug traffickers work. I thought it was important now to understand a little bit more about how legal, I guess, traffickers work. You know, the folks who sit around going, if we do this, social media apps, I think, are a perfect example of that. If we put this out, if we do this, if we ask, if we, if, you know, the, the, the Facebook like button is, is, is have been shown to be extraordinarily addictive. You just, you just can't wait to get a like. And oh my God, it's so wonderful. And and all of this, I think, is as you say, it's a, it's a product of our own enormous prosperity, and endlessly so, and also the idea that if you strip the very value of stuff out of it, it becomes more addictive. If you strip food of its nutrition, it becomes entirely entirely addictive. If you strip the the, the what makes the body have to work hard to get there to achieve something like like digest nutritious food, it will be much more difficult for that, for that stuff to hit your brain real hard. If you strip all that stuff away, then all of a sudden it hits you real quick. The same is true of our opinions today, it seems to me. We, we have opinions. We used to work, have to work hard for opinions. Have to, used to have to talk to other people and read and read people who knew more than you and, and develop these opinions. That, that was hard work. Now we have them force-fed to us like as memes we on have Twitter. Takes. And it hits our brains very, very quickly. They're, they're called takes now. That's a take, not an opinion. It's an yeah. instant thing. And it gives you instant pleasure. And you get the dopamine hit of lots of people saying, yay, you're on our team. Great for you. And right. we're all humans. And yes. whether we think we're being affected by that, we are. The other thing that struck me that's, that's clear is that also part of the selling of addictive substances make, is also convenience that you don't want you want to reach the consumer where he or she is you don't want them have to make 
a dangerous trip to a very dangerous neighborhood to get a dangerous drug that you can't test. If you can, and, and what you showed in Dreamland was actually, this was the breakthrough. The breakthrough was handing out telephone numbers, delivery of Tar Heel heroin, just delivery. It's it's everything, you know, in the epidemic, we've, the, the, the COVID epidemic, we're just used to ordering stuff and it appearing. Well, that is what, the Mexican heroin cartels figured out. We'll make right. this incredible. We'll also make it middle class. Oh, absolutely. We we will break down the the sort of psychic barriers between the underworld and the consumer world. And online, everything is very fluid. And so you're buying your drugs online right. the way you know you might buy buy something from Amazon, and it feels like a similar experience, except that the product you're getting is like is is so much more potent. So. Let's move. Let's move into yeah. that, and uh, so that, there's that aspect of it. But there's also the aspect of the other technological thing, which is the increasing sophistication of chemistry and of pharmaceutical compounds, yeah. and the ability to manufacture these substances and to import them quite easily. The increasing concentration of power in these drugs because of the incentives of the drug war, of course, where the smaller the amount and the more potent it is, the better right. it is. Tell me, you know, how heroin then became fentanyl and how and how that led to meth. Just if you could tell us that sort of chronology, because we know that the basic direction well, I, is I with things they're, getting, they're, Yeah, go on. Sorry, Sam. They're kind of two stories that that that, that move in, in in parallel. The first one really came with methamphetamine in Mexico. We're talking about the Mexican trafficking world down, particularly on the western uh, side of Mexico, Sinaloa, down to like Michoacan, and, and and those those states in there. And and the first the, the the trafficking world for you know since its infancy has always been made up of farmers and ranchers, people tied to the land. And that was how, so marijuana, poppies, that kind of thing. They, that's, they were not sophisticated folks, not educated, and they didn't think that, that you had, you know, everything their life revolved around was the land. Well, as time went on, though, of course, their children and their grandchildren began to understand that, that, that if you make a drug, if you make a drug in a laboratory, you ha it's, it's a so much better. It's so much more profitable. It's easier to make. And the, the drug that they really under, first understood that with was methamphetamine. They, they came to an understanding of that because they cornered that market. They, the meth used to be made by biker gangs in California, Hells Angels and that kind of thing. And the Mexicans in the late 80s, early 90s basically took that market away because they knew how, they learned to make it much quicker, more quickly and with greater efficiency. And that taught them a basic basic thing about about drugs that it's better to make it in a in a laboratory you don't have to worry about land owning land sunlight or weather or irrigation you don't have to worry about seasons at all you can make it all year round all you really care about now is chemicals and can you get enough chemicals can, do you have access to ports where the world chemical market can can come to you and so that was an a, a lesson that they learned then along through as they were very well versed in that idea Along comes our opioid epidemic. They begin to sell heroin, which is again grown from the made from the, the poppy plant, which you grow. And along the way, midway through that, they discover fentanyl. And I tell the story in the book of the lab in Toluca, Mexico, not far from Mexico City, where a, a chemist who had grown up really in, in San Diego learned to cook fentanyl there. 
comes is hired by these guys, and he really they really want him to make ephedrine, which is used to make meth, a, a way of making methamphetamine. He says, "No, I'll make my thing," and he makes fentanyl. They were very angry with him at first. Not a good idea to get those guys angry, but then he was able to explain to them, this is the most profitable drug you are ever going to see. You can make one kilo and cut it into 50 kilos, and you can still make a lot of money on this. And 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 they so they discover, and this was right in their wheelhouse. This was, oh, they're like, oh, this is a chemical substitute for heroin. We can make this now in a lab, just like we've been making um, meth- methamphetamine, and it's so even all that hassle of and it's having easier to, to smuggle. All that hassle of having to grow the stuff, release yeah. the plants, ship them, process them, all the rest, suddenly that's gone. We're None in of this that. new era of we'll just make our design drugs in a right. in a factory. We'll get the chemicals from wherever, and we'll repurpose them. And the the more powerful these drugs are, the more money we're going to make, right? That and, unless we kill them all, of course. Which, sure, and which that's is, why they don't want when, to kill he their said, plants, presumably. They don't really care too much about that, and I'll tell you, explain to that why that is. But but the main thing was they saw that this could be, as I said, one. This guy told them one kilo can be cut into fifty, and they had never, never on the street have you ever heard a drug that can be cut fifty times. It's just not. And 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 a lot of times the reason that that those batches that he made eventually made their way to Chicago and Detroit, the reason they killed so many people that was the first instance of a, of a mass die-off to, to fentanyl was because nobody on the street believed it either. People would show up and say, you can cut this 50 times. And people would go, ah, come on, you're just trying to sell me this, get me to buy this. And in fact, that's exactly what could happen. But they sold it at very potent levels and you began to see this mass die-off. But again, they have learned this. They have learned all these lessons. You can, you can hide from the helicopters if you produce your drugs in a, in a laboratory. You don't need so many farmer or, or People hire so many people, and and the crucial thing is you can do it year round. The middle of winter, you can make this stuff. It's again getting back to a kind of a, a convenience idea, but but they saw and they saw in that kind of the future, particularly a few guys traffickers down there who were visionary, I guess you could say, when it comes to this stuff. But that was that was the thing that they first learned with methamphetamine. Now they're learning. Then they learn it very quickly with with fentanyl as they respond trying to 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 serve the demand created by our opioid epidemic how did they um how did they mix the fentanyl i mean you say 50 to 1 so that means that in a in a in a pill or whatever 150th of it is going to be fentanyl and 49 50th of it is going to be i don't know talcum powder or, or sweet and low or something i don't know what some yes, other a variety a of baking powder and, or yes. whatever right and how Lactose. do they make sure that how do they get that yeah. right I mean, is is that is, how do they get the balance? Um, right? Because presumably, if it's if it's four if it's it's four fiftieths, they're fucked, right? Because they're dead essentially. So how do they how do they actually in the streets uh, or in the factories, for that matter, get the right dosage of fentanyl? Well, frequently, I mean, they they there's a number of inert powders that go into to regular pill making. There's lactose. There's all kinds of things that you can mix that are white powder themselves that you can mix it with. And and and, and then it becomes a question of do you know how to mix it? One of the problems that we began to see early on when fentanyl really began to hit that lab when it got busted faded away. Several years passed. Chinese began to make fentanyl in it, and people began to buy it. And, 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 and so the, the job of mixing this extraordinarily potent, very difficult to mix drug fell to really the local folks, local dealers and whatever. And that's when you began to see all these clusters of 
of uh, overdoses and in Cincinnati and Huntington, West Virginia. And I think one of the main reasons for that was because the folks on the street didn't have a clue how to do this. And the myth circulated that this was a good idea to use. It was a good idea to use a magic bullet blender to, to mix your, your fentanyl. Which is, of course, one of the worst things you could get. You know, magic bullets, you buy them in Target for twenty nine ninety five. Narcotics agent began to turn up at these mixing sites and see, you know, rows of magic bullet blenders, three or four. If the guy was a small scale guy, and and of course, this magic bullet blenders are mix liquid very very well. They don't mix powder, mm. and 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 that was really early on. It kind of showed you the. The, the 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 rudimentary nature of what was going on on the on the street and how no one really seemed to care anyway you know you just just mix it it's fine they'll take whatever it doesn't matter me that kind of thing but well, you, they, but it they was that won't, myth they I won't think, take weaker, early on they don't like weaker versions in that there was the, the people really wanted the biggest hit that that some of these probably yeah. dangerous things or the most in demand. That's certainly what I got from both of your books as a yes. kind of cult of the, because of course you also, you keep trying to recapture the original high. You keep want to recapture the thing that obviously your brain cannot give you because it's, it's going to wear out those abilities to feel that kind of high over time. It's tolerance is, 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 is the problem. So you have yeah. these, factories, you have them prepared, you have them quite sophisticated chemically, they're churning out the fentanyl, but then they figure out, as I understand it, that they could actually put meth out there without using ephedrine, which was the, that, that's the stuff in Sudafed. That's why whenever you want to get something to dry up your nose, you have to basically give them your passport so that you can't buy them in bulk. But at some point, and this also is kind of fascinating, just as interesting as the switch from heroin to fentanyl is, the switch from ephedrine-based methamphetamine to a, a completely new way of doing methamphetamine changes the drug and in ways that we, by using the same word for it, we may actually be missing an important change in what's happening with methamphetamine. So could, could you explain that to, to, to me and to, to my listeners sure. a little bit better? Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think they, they, I think they were forced to do that. Uh -huh. um, in fact, there is no reason why you would use another method other than ephedrine if you had ephedrine available to you. Because it's very easy to make ephedrine into methamphetamine. It doesn't. It doesn't rely. I mean, that's why it's made in prison cells at times, or you know, that kind of thing. It's not. It's not a very difficult way to make, and it's very efficient and so on. But what happened was in 19, in 2008, the Mexican government regulated or really made illegal ephedrine for anybody but a few pharmaceutical companies to possess, and this curtailed dramatically the supplies of ephedrine mm. that were being imported into, into Mexico. With that, they lost their main precursor, and then that meant they had to switch. I don't think anybody really wanted to. I think they just felt that they, they, they if they wanted to continue with this uh, golden goose of the of methamphetamine, they had to make it this different way. This different way, very inefficient, stinks, a lot of different chemicals. It just had one benefit. The one benefit over ephedrine was that you could make the precursor a variety of different ways, and it was very easy to make the precursor. The precursor to this way of making methamphetamine is known as uh, P2P, phenyl 2 propanone. It's a chemical that you can find a variety of ways of making it, and all of these ways use uh, chemicals that are easily available, industrial, legal, and highly toxic. And so they began to see that if they get one method of making P2P was shut down, they could make it a dozen other ways or more. 
And this, what this meant was that now all they needed were those chemicals and they could make more methamphetamine than, than anybody had ever imagined with ephedrine. And that's what began to happen as this system began to, as this method began to spread knowledge of it. And more and more people got into the business by 2013, 14, really, is when you see the supplies really begin to just explode. Methamphetamine, unlike with ephedrine, they, they barely covered the Western United States, never went east of the Mississippi River. With this methamphetamine now, they're able to make just orders of magnitude more methamphetamine this way. And it's now marching across the United States in enormous quantities, enough to knock the price down by 80, 90 percent. What I can say is by 2013, 14, you began to see this methamphetamine marching across the country. By 2016 and 17, it's in uh, the Midwest and Ohio, and which never saw Mexican methamphetamine before that. And by 2019, it's up in the New England area, which never had meth of any kind before that. And, and so it's it, and it's knocking the price down by 80, 90 percent. It's just a remarkable, unprecedented example of the underworld providing one kind of drug in just mass quantities. The problem with the drug is, though, that unlike the ephedrine drug, it's unlike it's unlike it in this way. The ephedrine drug was a, a, a party drug. It was a euphoric thing. You, you began to kind of feel like you wanted to hang out and party all night long and talk with people and be around other folks and this kind of thing. It was big in the gay community. It was big all over, really. it was a, That was what people used it for. This form of methamphetamine is the opposite. It's a very sinister thing. It takes you in, inside, and it's it's very it's accompanied by very rapid, I've, my reporting has shown anyway, very rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoia, horrible paranoia, horrible hallucinations, very terrifying. You can't live in a house. You can't live really with other people. So very quickly, people go homeless. And of course, they can't live in, in homeless shelters either because they're surrounded by people they think are after them. And it's a horrible mental illness, that, that meth-induced mental illness that ensues. And that is why also we have, I think, a, a main driver of our tent encampment homeless is this methamphetamine that in colossal quantities has marched across the United States over the last eight years. A very familiar paradox here, it seems to me, that just as when the feds decided that, oh, we have this opioid epidemic, let's cut off the opioid drugs, people went to heroin, and then from heroin to fentanyl. In other words, the intent that when the government moves to stop a particular chemical, instead of stopping the actual drug itself, it forces a move into another thing. So getting rid of ephedrine, cut it, cutting down that, led to them to innovate this different kind of meth that from different chemicals that turned out to be worse. It's 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 sort of a, a whack-a-mole in a way that the, you can you can try and ban some kind of chemical, but they will figure out a way to replicate it. The one question I have with you on that is that didn't the meth users notice the difference? I mean, uh, uh, did, did, did suddenly that one week yes, they're getting ephedrine Yes, sure, no, meth? very quickly. So tell me how that happened. Yes, how I would say that a out? lot of them, a lot, 
I mean, I think a lot of these guys, the guy I first spoke to about this, who, who clued me into this, was a guy named Eric Barrera, who was, who was a time, at the time I met him, had been sober uh, off meth for several years, had, was now a homeless outreach coordinator. And he told me when I met him one night that immediately he noticed the difference. It, it, but it's highly addictive as well. It's a strange thing because it's very sinister. It's, it, was, uh, it sent him into... a. a violent paranoia. He was stabbing the walls. He, this is a very p peaceful fella. And uh, stabbing the walls of his girlfriend's house, thinking there's a man, she's hiding a man in the walls. And never had this ever happened. He'd been using meth for eight years by then. He said, never had this ever happened. There was no more euphoria. I just kind of crawled into myself. And it's that part of methamphetamine, which I think keeps people using. It's, it's scary. It's damaging. But the other thing about this meth, is that I think once it turns you, you know, and once it creates or, or once the, the symptoms of, of mental illness uh, occur in you uh, and you are now homeless, it is, it is a drug that also separates you from such so, so severely from reality that it actually makes it easy to be homeless. You know, it, I... creates, it creates homelessness and then makes homelessness worth bearing because you don't really know where you are. You don't know where you've been. I've talked to people who's, who, who said, I just kind of lost a week. I'm not really sure what happened, you know, when I was using this stuff. And, and so it's, there is this, there is the euphoria is gone, but there's still this thing that keeps you using because you're so, it, it seems to me anyway, so involved in your, in, in your own thoughts and, and you don't want to be around other people at all. And this allows you to just be on your own by yourself, sometimes watching pornography just in your tent maybe the tents work perfectly for that you know the tents are like this perfect housing vehicle all you have to do to get away from this menacing uh, scary world is crawl inside in, inside a tent and you're all alone with your with whatever strange thoughts your your brain is 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 cooking up i've had a friend come to me and warn me of these dangerous sea creatures that are walking around in the reeds of the beach in provincetown and do i realize how much danger i am in and this person is apparently functional at the time otherwise acted not but was haunted by these things i i had a friend another friend who over time, it was none of us knew either what was going on. And so he would put up for a lot of time perfectly good front. But slowly, things began to fall apart, you could see. Until eventually, uh, he, was, he was desperate and asking me to sit with him because he was afraid that Kim Jong-un was going to launch a nuclear war. And he was so afraid of this, he couldn't go to the office. And I had to call his boss to try and explain this. He had such a panic attack, he went to the ER. Now... I mean, in the gay male world, we've seen this really upfront. I've 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 seen people go, become homeless. I, I, I've seen, and it's sort of fused. The dopamine hit is fused with another dopamine hit, which often for gay men is the first time they have sex or the first time they 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 realize who they are, and a lot of that is sexual. So you add the sexual dopamine hit to this intensification of the hit. And the addiction is extraordinarily powerful, and no, very few people come back. And after they've come back, I mean, I, I, I have friends who've also come back. It takes them years to have a sexual experience that they yes. can find meaningful or pleasurable. It's amazing what this does yes. to people. I'm, I'm genuinely shocked by it, how it is destroying. Yeah. It, 
the way people yeah. describe it is it doesn't just take their money, it takes their soul somehow. They don't become the people, they become someone else. And I've never seen you know, You know, I would say that, yes, I would say that in speaking with people, after I spoke with Eric Barrera, I was really, my story was really going to be at first going to be just about this enormous supply that they were, the capacity of production and all that. And then he told me this and I began to say, well, the capacity of production has allowed meth to be all over the country. Then these symptoms logically must be uh, in some degree all over the country as well. And so I began to talk and, and, and the folks I began to talk to said the same, same thing that you're just saying that, you know, one, I spoke with a woman uh, who runs a treatment center in Eastern, in Eastern Tennessee, and she says, it takes several months for those guys to get here. And she's seen this very vividly and very graphically. It takes several months before the, the personality of that person even returns. So it, we used to keep people in our center for nine months or so, six to nine months. Now we're keeping them like 12 to 14 because it takes that long. It takes four or five months before we even see a personality reemerge. Re it's very difficult to get people into treat because in, in drug treatment, what is most important is human connection. You'd be able to converse with the other person. But if you are out of your mind seeing sea creatures or cheetahs out of the wall or something like that, there's no way you can actually have a conversation that makes any sense to anybody. And so it's, it's the treatment is a problem Problem too, and then uh, frequently, what what Eric was telling me, what he saw all the time as he was in uh, a homeless, uh, doing homeless outreach, going through these encampments, he would offer housing to people and treatment to people, and some who would take it would come out of the. But then, as soon as it got rough, they run right back to the encampment where all the people were kind of like them, you know. When there wasn't that, there was a. It was a very strange world, very very paranoid world. But at least it was everybody using the same stuff, kind of, and and. It, I, I totally agree with, with what you said. It, it, it seems to me that it, it defeats treatment even before treatment happens. It, it, it strips one of a personality, and, and that personality takes a long time to re return. The way it starts, as I've experienced it, and it's one of the reasons why I'm extremely worried about it, and, and I think the gay question is often buried, and it's a huge, huge crisis that no one wants to talk about, partly because it's it's also wrapped up in shame. But what's also true is that people can function in other, other parts of their life for quite a while in a way that convinces you that nothing's going on. I, I knew someone who lived with his partner, lived with him, went to work every day. The partner had no idea that his partner was, uh, after he'd gone to sleep, going out, doing stuff, coming back in. Then in order to go to work, he would do more meth so that he could function at work. Right. And then one morning, this 30-something-year-old, this yeah. quite young guy, is getting ready for work, and he he's lights a cigarette, and he's ready to go. And then they find him. His husband comes home that night, and he had fallen. He'd had a massive heart attack. He had fallen so hard, yeah. he hadn't even broken his fall. His nose was broken on the floor. The cigarette was still light in the ashtray. And... <laughs> People were staggered this has happened, let alone how it happened. Yeah. Uh, the thing about right. that, more even than, I think, heroin or, or opioids, is that it, 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 it is an upper, so you are capable of functioning at least in front of people. And for somehow it also gives people the capacity to lie to your face God knows how many times in which they insist nothing bad yeah. is happening. It is truly terrifying to watch. I've never seen anything like this. And the fact yeah. that it could be manufactured no, I, I, so easily and so. is now awash 
And it's so, the other thing is it's so cheap, right? Tell us about how that happened. They just mass yeah. produced the stuff. Prices. Well, I, I think, I, I think the, the price is simply a function of the ability to make it. And that is simply a function of the, of the chemicals coming into Mexico from, from the two ports on the west, western side of, of, of Mexico, it, at least those two ports, maybe others as well. It, you know, you just have so many. Again, that's, that's what, what governs you now. Can you get the chemicals? Land doesn't matter. Sunshine seasons don't matter anymore. So, so it's if you get the chemicals, you can make it. And, and I think also, frankly, what has also happened is we call these groups cartels. And the truth is they're not cartels in, in fundamental ways. One is that a cartel is a group that comes together economically to force price, to force uh, production, to halt production, to force price up. That's what OPEC did. Well, that's the opposite of what's happened here. This is not cartels at work. This is on the ground. What is really happening is that some people have access to these chemicals. They're selling it to anybody who wants to buy it. And the numbers of people who want to buy and now make methamphetamine have just you know, it, it, it multiply dramatically. And so you get people making it all over the place now. And some of them make it one way, some make it another. It's some, this, this I think will account for sometimes the variation in what actually the effect is on a certain, a certain person that could be, that could be part of it, I think. But, but you've got all these new people. It's a glut, a glut economy. And when, and, and I lived in Mexico for many years and when I was there, I, I noticed an attitude w with regard to, to the economics that was very prevalent, particularly at the lower classes, that once a price drops on your product or your your service or whatever, you don't stop making that product. You double down, you triple down, you, you make more of it to make exactly what you used to make in, in income from just more 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 shops or what have you. And I think that is that's pretty much what's going on down in Mexico now. The price goes down and that prompts people to start more labs instead of say, well maybe I ought to found another business here. You know? Which makes it much harder to control or shut down once you have multiple sources of chemicals that can be bought yes. on the open market. Independently of other, many of them are perfectly legal for other purposes, right? I mean the 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 the, the, the many of these chemicals are not inherently illegal. It's only combined in certain ways that can be done so. And if you if you do that, how do you undo it? How do you stop this happening? How do you how can you possibly prevent this? Is, well, this is the thing that sort of struck me with fentanyl. It's like just if you can send it in a in a little envelope, like in a postcard or something, it's so little of it. And and you can do that and across the world, how on earth does any government control it? it, it it's too small and too potent to be controlled. Yeah. It so is. <laughs> on the other hand, and and we may always have it nearby, but I do think that Mexico can do a whole lot more than what they are doing, which is basically, in my opinion, very, very little to deal with this. China China was the biggest manufacturer of fentanyl, right? I mean, uh, uh, is yes. China su and they, supplying they have, these groups? Is that where they're yeah, getting their Yeah, China has China? been... Um, China has been has cut down on as as put an end to kind of uh, all these companies making fentanyl, and they are now only a few companies can make it in China now since about 2019, but they have not cut down on the on the in the ingredients that go into making fentanyl, and that is that is a big a big deal. So the the Mexicans now have been buying and have learned how to make fentanyl industrially kind of, and now they have figured and 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 they are just buying those ingredients from from China and, and, and making their own, 
making their own fentanyl. And so, so what you have is now the, the place right on our flank is making these, these gigantic quantities when before it was China sending it through the mails and, and what happened. And that was the early days of it all. But it was it been a kind of a process. But I think the main thing is that in Mexico, they are doing very, very little to to stop this. And I, and I think that that it's, it's as, uh, what we were talking about earlier. You know, when you have so much supply that it's everywhere, it's always in your face. It's like soda always around you or alcohol always around you. That will create a certain kind of problem for 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 consumers when it's far more restricted. It won't be perfect, but it will be much better than than if you just have it everywhere and all in your in your in your face. So again, we get back to the convenience thing. When you make it so prevalent and so cheap, there's no friction to finding it, no friction to buying it. It becomes a little bit, I think, like like soda or alcohol, which is cheap and legal, and that, and then you can find it find it anywhere. And I think I think. For the moment, I think I'd be happy if Mexico just made a concerted long-term effort just to reduce the, the supply. It may always be this highly profitable thing that will be difficult to dissuade people from using, but, but you can't just then throw up your hands and go, well, nothing, nothing will probably work. I think a lot of things will work. They just haven't. They just haven't tried them. We didn't. We didn't think we would get rid of the FBI. The I'm sorry. The Italian mob, which was so ingrained in our big cities like New York and Philly and so on, Boston, until the FBI decided to get serious in the in the 80s and really went after these guys. And frankly, the Italian mob not nearly what it once was. It exists probably. They probably cause problems. But if you just if you if you throw up your hands on the um, and, 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 and say, well, there's no way we can enforce the rule of law, you're you're sunk. And I think, frankly, currently anyway, in Mexico, that seems to be the approach. Hmm. One point you make is that in a weird kind of way that fentanyl was replaced by meth in many parts of the country, that it that became the drug of choice. Now, I just have a just counterintuitive question of them. They, they have very different effects. They seem to answer very different human needs. How, why would someone on fentanyl be satisfied with meth? Right. I think it gets back to some of those lab experiments that they were doing at Princeton Back in the tw- in the early 2000s that we were talking about earlier, one of the one of the uh, experiments they did was to get sugar dependent rats, give them sugar and only dependent, and, and then take the sugar away and provide them with something else, alcohol or amphetamine or something like that. And they found that they went very quickly. Once your brain is wired for addiction and wired to get high, it almost sometimes doesn't matter what it is. And I think right now what we're really seeing all across the country is a kind of a polypharmacy approach to dope. Like you will take anything that happens to be available. When it comes to methamphetamine and why it would be a, a stimulant and why it would be uh, a replacement for heroin or fentanyl, it has to do with 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 a little bit with, with that idea. People are, are still opioid addicts. They're on Suboxone, which is kind of a drug that kind of subdues the opioid cravings, but they still want to get high. They're still in that mode of saying, my brain is still not gone through the kind of the life repair that also needs to accompany uh, drug addiction treatment. And so they, they switch. Also, the idea is, well, fentanyl will kill me and meth won't. That's technically true. And so they begin to go that way. They go for it that way. Sometimes people say that, that 
when you use fentanyl and meth together that the the fentanyl will modify the the the, the feelings of, of of madness and insanity that i mean it could be that there's like these a variety of of reasons it depends on on the person i have found though that that you find a remarkable number of people have switched and you maybe still opioid addicts technically because they're using suboxone and they're just they don't have the cravings as much and now they've just gone on to methamphetamine basically i think what it really boils down to again we're getting back to the thing we talked about earlier in these lab experiments and that is convenience We've shown that the convenience, ease of pro- ease of access, how cheap it is, all of that is a big, big part of of why people switch. Even though it's n- really never happened in a history of our drug use in America, that so many people using a depressant like like an opioid have switched to a stimulant. This doesn't happen that quickly. No, that's why it fascinates me. It suggests that we're in a slightly new period in a way. Maybe it's because the the cravings that fentanyl do create are so intensely strong that if you're taking whatever you said to suppress them, you just don't feel, you don't feel satisfied. And there is this suicidal <laughs> need. But you're right. That's, 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 that's what concerns me too. It's, it's as if it's anything to plug this hole that, that's in your soul in a way that anything. And, and, and obviously, it's also the case that we were in a fentanyl epidemic and we have this arriving and then at the same time we have an another actual viral pandemic that forces everyone to sit still did did the and therefore we've seen big increases in addiction and depression and mental illness because of the und, uh, really brutal conditions that people have very unsocial conditions that that we've been in yeah. so it's been you know it's it's been a multitude of of different combining factors. What can we do? Here's what I found, and this is why I think the important part of your book is really, apart from detailing the scale of this, which is, and the cost of it, is is that you have seen people begin to rally back, to begin to try and repair what is happening, even though it seems to me it's like trying to, is, is trying to stop the tide coming in in some ways. The one thing that a lot of people I know just anecdotally who deal with people who've, who've succumbed to meth is that it's really hard. It's really hard to be with people when they're in this situation. They, they lie to you always. They go in and out of rehab. And, and, and a lot of, lot of us just at some point for our own ha- mental health have to draw a line and say, we can't, I just can't have you in my life. It's all crazy. It's, it's all crazy. And it, it's, so my position is rather resigned. I, I, I just, and I've, I've seen statistics on people's recovery from meth, especially if you started to inject it, which is brutal. I mean, barely anybody yeah. recovers. Right. But so what have you found out there that actually has made a positive difference? Well, yes, it's, it's an extraordinarily dour panorama there's no 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 doubt about it particularly if you are close to it and you have a loved one or someone you know who's involved in it it, it can be just a harrowing harrowing thing i think that's that was really the the great one of the great tragedies of the pandemic was that it took place just as the mexican trafficking wor- trafficking world had literally covered the entire country with fentanyl and methamphetamine i mean really literally that's kind of what happened they 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 just exactly at that moment Boom, you know, and and, and so it, it it became kind of a the term 
perfect storm is a cliche now, but but it is it is true. This this happened just as all the, this dope arrives, and it's and it's it's just more dip, more potent and, and cheap than than and prevalent and convenient to get than ever. Certainly, if you're in that in that world, my feeling is when I wrote the book. It, that that I that that what we're dealing with here is I, I kind of get into the idea that 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 we really need to understand that the roots of all this. When I started Dreamland, writing Dreamland, it seemed to me that the roots of the opioid epidemic, which I was not expecting to realize, it really didn't have to do with the story didn't have to do with drug trafficking, drug marketing. It had to do with our own destruction of community, our own isolation in prosperity, big houses and cars, screens. We don't really have much to do with each other uh, a- anymore. And I think that this was a big part of why the opioid epidemic took took place. I also think a big part of it was that we looked, we yearn for magic answers, easy answers, because the compl- they're complicated. The, the complicated ones are too tough to get our minds around, you know? And so, so we, we yearn for, the, you know, some magic bullet solution. And, and that's what medicine kind of gave us. But I think we were part of that. We were demanding doctors cure us, demanding quick cures, easiness, convenience, and all this. And the doctors really don't have that they had pills and so they gave us all pills the same kind of pill for every human being was supposed to solve all our all our problems when we when they said well you really need to work on your wellness you need to get in shape you need to stop drinking smoking spend time around other people more you know on these all these eating better etc etc we as a culture push back on that you know and the and so all they were left with was well you can take these pills these pills and and we left happy left the office office happy. So when I was writing Dreamland, I had, I mean, uh, the least of us, I had that very much in mind, that this was, this was really the, the roots of all that, of that opioid epidemic lay in, in all this that I've just described. And, and so what I began to do as I started the book was really try to find Americans who were not solving the opioid epidemic or the meth problem or anything like that, but instead were doing what in the long term I thought was actually far more uh, powerful. And that was simply attempting to find a way of repairing community, finding a way of being around other people. So I tell the story, for example, of, of the guy named, a guy named Bird, nicknamed Bird in Muncie, Indiana, you know, a neighbor, in a neighborhood that has had these two enormous, enormous transmission plants. Now they're dying and they're fading away. Finally, they just close. And he lives in that neighborhood all his life. In fact, he's actually kind of psychologically compelled to even stay in the neighborhood. He can't really leave it psychologically. And he works at the local community center. Then the city decides we're going to close the community center, don't have budget. They do so. And they thought the budget thing was closed. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, for the next several years, Bird, who kept, kept a key, and he just opens it for people, for ba- kids who want to play basketball or old folks who want to play cards, wedding receptions. He does all, he mows the lawn. He keeps the, keeps the toilets fixed. And all the while providing a community center, true in, in the truest sense of the term, for a community that is just unraveling and under enormous, enormous stress, economic as well as drugs and so on. And, and to me, it was this kind of story that, that I wanted to tell, which is to say, I don't have a, a solution for your county, what you need to do. I do think that these stories stand as, as emblematic of the attitudes that we need to, need to start getting back to. We evolved to work to function like this we evolved to work in community the caveman who decided he was going to go on go it on on his own was very quickly uh eaten or died 
And so we evolved in these ways that, that were essentially communal ways. And, and in the last certainly 40 years in America, I, can th I, I think you can find numerous examples of how we have strayed from that. We have found a way of, uh, we, we've decided we can be on our own and it will never have any problem. And we, we don't need to really care about it. We don't need to care, care for people who are, who, are, who are weaker than us or more vulnerable than us. And that, that's where I came to the idea, you know, that, that the pandemic was teaching us too, which was we're only as strong as the most vulnerable. We're only as strong as the least of us. We're only as strong as that grocery store clerk who without health insurance has to go to choose to go to work or, or, or stay home. She might be sick. And the meatpacking guy who all of a sudden we discover is an essential worker. Does he go to work or does he, you know, or he stay home sick and this kind of thing. It's, it, it seems to me that so much of this stuff that we're talking about now is pointing in this direction that, that we need to, to, we need to stand up and take, take notice of it. And if we don't, it will it will further damage us. Our, our solutions are, are very hard to find when we're isolated. And when it, we're in community, they suddenly appear uh, miraculously, it seems to me. The, the broader understanding of that is that humans have been so successful, we're so brainy. We've constructed a world of such plenty that we're simply not really psychologically and physically evolved to live this way. And therefore we are miserable or we the things that we think are going to make us happy are not going to make us happy that the 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 world of i hate to sound like such a tory but i am kind of i i i that the old <laughs> old connections the community even if you just saw them every day to say hi you know we just saw their faces every day you had small little relationships in your own community. Some, some of them you knew as close friends, others you knew as just faces. Other people were just a nod, other people were a hi. But you had that sense you belonged somewhere and it had some kind of meaning. And that yes. we have lost that. And that is, you know, that is that is painful to us. We are unhappy alone and we seek to mitigate that unhappiness. And here you have, and we're also taught by a culture. Everything is easily fixable. Here it is. Take it. And so there we are. Oh, well, this will help. This will yep. make me feel good. The number of Matthews has yeah. said to me at, at some point or other, well, every now and again, I have this fantastic, you know, weekend of complete debauchery and I love it. It's amazing and it's just intense and I've got it under control. And then about six months later, I find, you know, they're kicked out of their apartment. You know, it, it, it's and the power of these particular yeah. drugs and the chemicals that we've developed really do seem to be at a new level. I have I've been around a lot of people with a lot of drugs, and I'm basically quite comfortable with the large majority of them. But the, but these two, <laughs> I mean, you could you could you right. know you can do mushrooms twice a year and you'd really be okay. You you could you could do a whole bunch of them. But this stuff is designed. It's 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 different than anything. I've not. I, it's one of these things where I used to say, "There's no such thing as a gateway. You can you can control it. You can do once." I don't think you can do these things once. I really do think they're that. No. Um, they grab you by the soul and they will not let go of you. And, and the only way around it is not to touch them. And I, I don't, I, I, you know, yeah. I want to abolish the drug war. I hate no, it. I, I, I don't know. These particular things are just killing people. 
I think you're right. I think I think the days of recreational drug use are over. I hate to say it. We grew up in it. I grew up in it. But I think that the days of recreation, there's no such thing. It's all a Russian roulette. Well, with, you know? with, with the, and I think you're when right. I, I mean, I grew I up in a town. medical marijuana dispensary that, 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 that I, is legal and allows me to smoke weed. And I do on a reg- every day, every night. I'll, have, I'll smoke something to get to sleep or to chill out. I don't, I, I think that's actually, I mean, in fact, that era of recreational drugs is surely at its peak. Many more people are smoking weed today than ever did in the past, right? Why is that not sustainable? I, I think you're, you have to ask your question, who can use this recreationally? You, past 25, can use it. A 14-year-old, yeah. an 18-year-old, I don't believe can. I'm sorry, I just don't think marijuana, the, the potent marijuana that's around today is, is a damaging thing for the yes. prefrontal cortex, for the, developing the, the brain. executive decision-making But We're talking here about adults, basically, grown, consenting adults. And... It seems to me that there are plenty of, of, of actually, when we're finding out, for example, that magic mushrooms are incredibly useful, uh, that, that something like ketamine has actually been a boon for mental health, that there are, that, that the psychedelics are actually in a huge improvement in our understanding of depression and are actually being really well researched into curing depression. So I think there's a lot. But at the same time, we also have these particularly potent forms. I want to, part of you wants to say this, it seems, that, that, Everything is a gateway drug. That's part of what seems to be in your underlying <laughs> is that you're, 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 you, start, um, you start with Coca-Cola and you, we're slowly priming the brain every small way to think of every experience as a dopamine hit. And by training the brain that way, everything becomes addictive in a way. Is that – am I unfairly – it, it seems – it. no, I mean it seems like that – it seems that that – that there is something to it. Obviously, there are other issues involved. How much uh, trauma have you experienced in in your life? That's a big. That's turning out to be a very big one. That's huge. I would say. What childhood is your trauma, the environment right? in which you live? And then I'm childhood sorry, trauma. That? Childhood trauma is dramatically correlated with later inability to handle drugs. Yes, exactly. Rape, child molestation, beatings, all that kind of stuff. And that, you find that very common in women and, and particularly uh, women who are addicted. You find rape or some kind of sexual abuse is really, really a very scarily common, it seems to me. So I think I think that there is something to that. It seems to me like we all that's one of the, the lessons of neuroscience, right, is that we all can be addicted. We all have. I've, I was addicted to nicotine for 13 years. I quit nine times, relapsed nine times. Of course, the difference is you don't die when you relapse on cigarettes. But but we all are addicted to something. Social media, shopping, gambling, pornography, video games, f- fat and sugar together, shopping, I guess. You know, all these different things hit us the same way. What the, the big question is, what accounts for people taking it all the way to the extreme and getting addicted to these very serious drugs of abuse? Because the drugs of abuse are a little bit different. Drugs or abuse are, abuse are a little bit different in that these are the only substances we know of that have suppressed all the brain the neuroscience neurosystems in our in our brain that that keep us alive. They suppress our need our desire to eat, have sex, but also our our threat our, our perception of danger and threats to our our livelihood or to our lives. And so when you, what, what you get on these things is you get people uh, who stop having sex, stop 
stop eating. The dope is the only thing. They stop really having any communal or loving, trusting relationships of any kind, which is also, you could say, is what we evolved to, to, to keep us alive. And then at the same time, the drugs are, are reverting what's in our, our brains to use those, those systems that kept us alive to kept, warn us of danger and, and revert them, brainwash, re, redirect them. So that and, and, and so that the brain is now all in all all systems are in favor of using more and more drugs, regardless of how close death may be. We don't feel it anymore. It's a remarkable thing that that goes on with these with these drugs um, that they have found in, in heroin, cocaine, meth, these kinds of things, fentanyl, of, of course. But it's it's that it's that power over our brain that really people call it a disease. My feeling is that's probably not the best terminology sometimes. I think a better idea is that this is simply brainwashing and an, an, temp, an intense hijacking, the sa same way that those 9-11 hijackers took that plane. It was going to take people all across the country to see loved ones in San Francisco and Los Angeles and redirected it towards their own death in, in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania or in D.C. or New, New York. It's like Think of it in that way, and you get a sense for how powerful the drugs have. And, and they're almost unique, I think. I'm not sure of any other substances that do this to our brain. But methamphetamine and car fentanyl seem to be to be, and, and car fentanyl, God help us, which is, which is used to anesthetize rhino rhinoceroses. <laughs> they are in a class of their own. You do seem to have one hit and you're out of humanity, essentially. Uh, and you're right. I mean, this is my one experience with meth. Here I am telling the world my private life, but with a long time ago, a couple of decades ago, where I didn't know what it was. And they would seem like a tiny little thing. And and someone said, why don't you try this? And I was like, well, try this. it looks like it's two, three pieces of salt. I mean, what the hell? And I was up for two days. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to sleep, which is kind of rare. And I and I couldn't get a hard on. I mean, I thought, I thought this is a form of hell just completely awful hell and so i i, I would never end up, i was like god no what who would ever want to do that it's absolutely awful i don't mean to make fun of it because it taught me very quickly that that how powerful and potent i did not recognize myself recognize myself at all in those 48 hours it is a it's a truly scary thing and and yes and and, and, and i think yeah. yeah, and I think that that's exactly what you what you saw in your own thing is what drugs of abuse do to our to our brains under the worst ex conditions. I mean, they just take away everything that that we have evolved to keep us alive and procreating and prospering, and they revert a revert that brain towards just in in full obedience. To, to the dope. It's fascinating because this has come, become far more common at the very moment when we have far fewer threats to our life. We have food. We don't have to work for food. We don't have to, we don't have to work for water. We can have sex whenever we want. It's like not, not a, not a, it's, 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 it, we've, we've created a world in which all these things are so possible. And at the very t moment when it's, they're so possible, they become that these drugs are, are now more prevalent than ever that will take that all away from us. And I'm trying to struggle with this idea, like, what does this actually mean? I'm not quite sure I know yet, you know, but but it does seem to me that this is this is kind of where we're 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 going. And, and I think also it gets back to something you said earlier of these people, these these scientists and 
and the different folks in these these companies kind of making these these products that are just so finely tuned to hit our hit our hit our brains and we we have all of that arrayed against us you know all those people spending all that money all that investment capitalism doing all this to create what slogans so that we will just absolutely have to have a, a dripping you know almost pornographically dripping hamburger shown to us on 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 TV and and pizza and 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 all this stuff it seems to me like like our our own capitalism is like a drug in that it is in a sense bizarre sense uh, reverting or diverting our our entire economy towards what will kill us Yes, because That's we're how able it seems to. to me anyway. I don't know. It, the, These are ideas I'm working with. Well, yeah, I'm fascinated to talk to you about them because it, it, it strikes me that one of the possibilities that we're discovering is that because you've only really lived in a world of real plenty, real plenty, like without really needing for maybe half a century in the West. I mean, people had to work hard, and 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 the level of material ability to satisfy yourself were certain limits. I mean, the world I grew up in had many, 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 many more limits than the one that I now live in. And on top of that, we have technology that is enabling us to fulfill every conceivable want or need that we could ever want. We have, you know, I grew up with no pornography. I can meet... 17-year-olds <laughs> who have basically discovered and analyzed every single possible variation of sex, every conceivable fantasy they could possibly have. And I'm just like, well, what's left for you to discover in the world? I mean, like, what, what, and it's as if humans can't actually prosper in great plenty, that we weren't designed to live yes. in that kind of plenty. And when we have it, we tend to Right. abuse it. And when you look in the past, you look at the people who did have this kind of money and power, they also abused it. I mean, you look at the upper classes of, right. of ancient Rome, I mean, they were also completely out to lunch and they were also into sex and drugs and because you can't help yourself because it's we're humans. And somehow if we were struggling to survive, it took our minds off this shit. Yeah, or if we had, by the way, yep, you know, and I, I'll, I'll bring this up, we had religion, which, which provided a a, a kind of meaning and a structure and ritual to get us through life so that we weren't constantly asking ourselves, what's the meaning of all this? Like, what am I doing? Like, what mean? Right. Do I, where am I? How am I going to live? Am I going to die? Blah, blah, blah. So let me just do this drug. Let me hook on this porn site. Let me, let me vent on social media. Let me eat this fast food. Let me, I mean, all this stuff, which we all love. I mean, I love fast food. I don't, I, they, 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 they they do it well because they know what they're doing. And I, there's nothing, I, I mean, I will like Chicken McNuggets. I find it impossible not to like Chicken McNuggets. I, I prefer it to <laughs> everything I'm told is good for me. Because it is, it does, it triggers all those things right. in my mouth. It's like, this is great. I'm going to, this is going to nutrition. It's, it fools us into, it feels nutritious, but it isn't nutritious. Exactly. And soda too, right? And soda. I think that that, How can I stop stuff... myself drinking soda? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I have, as a matter of fact, is a part of the, my reaction to writing this book is I stopped drinking. I used to drink Coca-Cola quite often. I don't don't do that anymore. I do eat In-N-Out Burger from time to time. But, you know, what's interesting about all this, I think it's fascinating concepts we're, we're like struggling with here. But, you know, to me, speaking with a neuroscientist one time, he said, you know, what our bodies and our minds really are, are just calorie preservation machines. And they they, they grew into that because calories and food and so on took so much effort to to get and to find and to and to 
obtain that that you know our bodies just conserve that stuff mightily you know and so whatever now that we have it our brains have have as you say you know our, our, we live in a period of the only really the last 50 years when we've seen this kind of plenty and our brains really are stone age brains they are not have not evolved to the point where they can deal very effectively with all that's offered to us and we do need a scarcity sometimes we do need supply to be low and and reduced and and i think and and they they've, they've found that that i think that 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 one way to stop people from a bad habit is to make it very difficult to do that bad habit one way to do that is to reduce the the, the supply well the trafficking world has learned the same lesson to some degree that that the soda manufacturers and the fast food manufacturers have learned and that is if you make it frictionless to get it'll be easier for people to people will continue that that habit so you put you put uh, on every off ramp you've got uh, fast food folks on every in every convenience store and grocery store you've got huge lyles of of soda and and in some way the the trafficking world has responded and like and and in kind and 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 created these enormous supplies now of drugs that that actually before were very hard to get and before were were very expensive and oftentimes very 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 weak now they are all the opposite they're available cheap and extraordinarily potent which is all the same thing as saying they're just everywhere we all live in this society the wealthy the poor the struggling middle class all of us we're all part of the same culture but it seems to me that those of us who have been lucky enough to have backgrounds and lives that give us more as it were agency more self-control more resources both familial and personal and financial can dabble in some of this stuff and and get out and survive and, and but 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 a lot of people that do not have that background especially with the breakdown of the family people who grow up in broken homes people who don't actually have a huge amount to offer in the labor market that that, that would have previously been better awarded i'm talking about the least of us which is the title of your book that right. we tend to we tend to see the drug the addicted person as this somehow dangerous or weird or unstable we don't see them as the weakest people who have been most hurt already people who are already walking around with wounds that we don't see and this is a it's a pain reliever yeah. however instant or quick and it, it's 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 i mean if you do not have the resources to recover from it or to or to have the mental resources to resist it or the family and friends and network that enabled you to draw back from that before it's too late. So this is also about the real wreckage of our culture, the people who are being left behind and this is their yes. this is their only and that might come from the upper classes too. I'm not I mean it's it this the thing about you know recovery is that it is every class of person and but I'm just saying those with the least resources are the most vulnerable and maybe we need to acknowledge that and and I mean I I I it, like deal with the question of the the mentally unwell and addicted homelessness which is obviously massive now on the west coast and it seems to be growing here what do we do about that do we force people into treatment well do we have to yeah, do I mean, that? I think that's what what actually is necessary. I think it's necessary now to do that. In fact, treatment has always been the, the route to treatment has so for so many years has come through through being arrested, 
you know, I've talked to too many folks who who count the, the luckiest day of their lives, the the fact that the the day when they got arrested, and it, it it's when you're subtracted, when you're ta- extracted from that from that from that supply. The problem is too with the, with I have to say with the, the COVID, what it amounted to was a, a year long unplanned, but a year long unplanned experiment in decriminalizing drugs when those drugs were these most potent, two most potent things that we've ever seen in our, in our, in our, in our history. And you know, jails were letting people go. Cops weren't arresting them for the, for the stuff that they usually. And of course, now we've got these, the, this idea that de- we should be decriminalizing, therefore not arresting people for small amounts of stuff. The, the problem is our thinking hasn't changed, but the dope has, right? The dope will not forgive that. It's not a it's not a kind thing to take some to to find someone on the street with a syringe and some stolen property and not arrest that person because that person is is like hours away from death. If the, there there is no such thing as being ready for treatment on the street. I don't think. I mean, some people can achieve that, but most people cannot. The rock bottom on the street is death. So you leave people on the street. It is not a kind thing. It is not a merciful thing to not arrest someone. The truth is, I think one of the key things that we need to do, and I think that this has been shown from the opioid epidemic and, and my travels around the country, is we need to rethink jail, how jail is done. Jail is a crucial lynch, it's a linchpin in all this because you go into jail with mental illness, a criminal intent or addiction, and you're going to come out worse in every single way, the way tr- jail is traditionally done. Now what you're seeing is many counties understand this, particularly in the Midwest. Kentucky actually happens to be a leader in all this. One of the reasons for that is, I think, that Kentucky has, has, is the only state in the country that elects its jailers. So the jailer is not some captain in a sheriff's department. He's directly accountable to constituents and budget and county supervisors and, and all that kind of stuff. Providing an, uh, an opportunity in jail for recovery. And, go, and there's many jails that are trying this now. It's not a panacea, but it is a step forward clearly away from the, the typical thing when you detox in jail, you're arrested, you, get, you detox, and you, then you sit for the next nine months waiting for your case or doing your DUI or something, and all you do is watch Judge Judy, you know, you, you sleep, you play poker. There's nothing productive. What the idea is to create recovery pods in jail, and they're doing this. This is happening right now. It's cheaper than running jail the traditional way, fewer fights, fewer con- less contraband, all that kind of stuff. I think that, yes, we need to understand that the longer people are out on the street, the greater chance that they will die. It's harm reduction to get them off the street. And then when we get them off the street, I think the counties that have prepared by re- by using jail as a, re- a recovery period, and and I all I say is you you think this is strange? Just go to one, just find see what, how this works. Uh, in, in in the least of us, there's three chapters on Kenton County, Kentucky, that near across the Ohio River from Cincinnati that is that is doing this. It's 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 a fantastic program. It's not a panacea, it it, it but it does it it is a remarkable kind of small step. Again, it's all that this is all about. How do we respond to this? It's all about small steps, in my opinion. And this is one small step away from what has ha- just hampered every every solution we've ever come up with, and that is how we run jail. Jail up to now has just been a disaster. This is a step away 
from that. But I do believe that the most merciful thing you can do for many people, particularly those folks mightily afflicted by either the, the meth or the fentanyl that is, that's out there today, is to get them off the street, for goodness sake. This is a, is a, is a crazy idea to think that, that they can live. They, they will not be able to get crazier or they will die from a fentanyl overdose or at the same time that they're out of their minds on meth. I mean, so anyway, to me, it, it feels like our thinking on this evolved 15, 20 years ago. And the drugs are, are changing every two years or three years now. And I think that that is the problem. We're seeing people say, well, you need to decriminalize, no bail, Don't nobody should have bail. Well, that's a, that actually bail can be a very unjust thing when, which you're, when addiction is not your problem. When you're arrested for something and addiction is not your problem, and then you have to stay there because you have money. This is clearly unjust and, and needs to be rectified. But if you are addicted to a drug, the idea that you'd be arrested for something that directly connected to your addiction, taken to jail and be kicked right back to the street. I don't see how on earth that's a good thing. No, and and how you treat it though is also really hard. I mean, that's that's the problem. That the more intense the drugs get, the harder the recovery is. As I said, you know, the 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 way in which meth seems to supercharge people's lives in the short term makes it, it makes it hard to persuade them to come back to what seems to be a drab and empty world in comparison. We also, of course, need to rebuild a community more generally. And again, but we have so many forces against it, social media, particularly the internet revolution. This is also new for most of us. I mean, for humanity, 2005, right, is the first <laughs> iPhone. So it's very new. I mean, we're 15 years into it. And that phone itself is an incredible tool in, in getting drugs <laughs> and, and also in creating anonymity and in contacting people securely and all the rest of it. So it, it, it does seem to me to be realistic, however. I don't want to, re, I don't want to restart the drug war, the, the, the punitive consequences. But if, if we understood it to be a sort of less a drug war than a than a rescue campaign of people who really are in desperate need of help and a danger to others yeah. and to themselves. I mean, it's, it's also remarkable, for example, how many of the, exactly. how many of the hate crime incidents are often from mentally ill people or meth addicts or whatever on the streets. So that, that's, right. that also spills over. Any sort of thing comes into their head and they can lash out randomly at people in ways that's, that's really scary. But, but wouldn't that simply be sort of reinstituting really a kind of the laws that, that 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 made mentally ill people, you know, be able to be taken away and put in institutions. I mean, isn't that the core of this? That we we society is saying we need to put these people keep, if not jail, then we need to get them out of society in order to help them become part of society. And that's something we, but because of the nature of the new drugs, because of the fact that human beings are basically pretty much helpless in the face of, I think that's important yes and to I think people. I it's think like what's it's not a failing this is a human thing for all sorts of human reasons you can find yourself falling into this thing let's not demonize people caught in this they are they they are responsible for themselves and that they they should be accountable for things that they do but once these drugs get into them they're not really themselves anymore if that's, that's you know, I think experience. I think it's important to understand what's going on in America today with regard to this stuff as not drug. Well, a drug addiction, of course, it is. But and issues which but it's really as much akin to a poisoning, a national poisoning as it is anything, anything else. And if it were poison and that people were compelled to use, we would we would say, wow, we need to do something far more draconian 
You know, I believe that we need to rethink our mental illness housing, our mental illness commitment. 72 hours at commitment, which in California is, is the kind of the, the standard, is, is pointless, is not, not, it doesn't work. And, I, and particularly when it comes to this kind of stuff, it does seem to me that we need to rethink mental illness housing, not asylums, but maybe community-based housing, which is what it should have been and never was when Reagan emptied the, 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 the asylums in the, in, in the 19, 1980s and so on. I mean, it seems to me that we need to rethink all this stuff and rethink the connection between addiction and mental illness, which is very strong. But I do think that this is, we've reached another stage. And I think the evidence is showing that, you know, all the myths that, that used to be the case that we used to hear about drugs and you know, laugh at, all those have become reality. You can die, you know? And so it seems to me that, that, that we need to respond in kind. We need to say, okay, these folks are clearly, clearly a danger to themselves. We, do, we are not committing an act of mercy by letting them stay out. out. That, is a, that is an insane idea, it seems to me. And the facts are just so overwhelming in fa- in, against that idea. And so I think we need to rethink that. I think we need to understand that this is kind of amounts to a poisoning, right? And that that means that people, we need to help people. Now, when you send the, the idea behind the, the transforming jail is n- and using charges against someone as leverage, particularly felony charges, is not to send them back to prison. That is not the idea. The idea has, and is now fairly common in many counties that can take you to, is to say, this is, uh, you have something affecting your brain that is, that, that we have to use every tool we ca- possible to combat because otherwise you will die. And, and, and so we use felony charges as a way of, of gradually leveraging as, as leverage against the, these these this this influence on your on your brain and moving you towards sobriety moving you away from the the the, the brainwashing essentially that these pills ha- and these drugs have 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 enacted on on your brain it seems to me it's a di- very different thing of course it, it to some people it, it it smacks of the drug war well i don't i don't see it if you if you study it if you look at it up close and and the way certain counties particularly i would say in the midwest where they've had the longest history of dealing with the opioid epidemic is where you find drug courts and jails that are really trying different things more commonly than elsewhere in the country i, I think it's because they've been faced with these facts that are irrefutable and and this is their response did you watch the 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 netflix series the tiger king you know i did not i did i'm sorry i you know i don't watch a lot well, it's of good because that, it, the reason I, I try to keep the my reason i bring to, it up is simply because it's a very entertaining and crazy story of crazy okay. people in the south doing all sorts of things with tigers so yeah. it's it's vivid but to me it it seemed to be self-evidently a story about methamphetamine and how it was slowly destroying everybody in that documentary. And But it was never mentioned. And one of the funny things about these drugs yeah. is that the, the, the things can appear on the surface as if nothing terrible is going on. And you can get away. I've been, I've been right. so successfully lied to by people who were spiraling down in meth that I, <laughs> I, just, I just thought, I don't know where I am anymore. I, I, I don't know how to even talk to people anymore. And that's hard to recognize yeah. that that's actually happening to us. And of course, shame also plays a part in this, played a huge part in covering up the opioid epidemic for a long time because families were not prepared to admit what had happened. 
And that's also true with meth and certainly with gay men and sex. At least we should be we should yeah. be attempting to talk about it and be more clear and 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 transparent yes. about it and and get past and also understand the chemistry of the stuff because it's that it's the move from heroin to fentanyl and the move from cocaine to methamphetamine of this particular kind that changes everything. And so it requires a lot sure. of thinking on a whole variety of levels. It requires technology. It requires a sense also of what means, makes a meaningful life for humans and whether our society actually is doing that anymore. These are, these are also, it seems to me, to be uh, warning signs of, uh, of, of an unwell country. That, that, that my friend Johan Hari also points out. In some ways, don't blame depression on people. The, the people are depressed because the culture is making them depressed. They don't have meaning. They don't have social contact. They don't have these forms of relationship. They don't have religion. They don't have ritual. They don't have these things they look down on now in the past that actually, although they did constrain our freedom, they really did, and they did hurt people. And you know there were many marriages that continued that didn't break up that were awful. There's any, any number of things, but overall, this you know, we're, yeah. I'm confronted with the paradoxes of happiness rather than the, the, the what happens when Americans catch the car, <laughs> as it were, and yeah. suddenly we have everything anybody ever dreamed of, but we can't handle it. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 it. You know, getting back to something you said earlier, just a bit ago, there, it's very very important. One of the things I s struck me, I have to say, was as I was working on this meth part of the story, particularly was that I was the one breaking the story. I don't think anyone's written about P2P meth causing this, this massive, or accompanied by, let's say, because truthfully, I'm not sure what the causation is, but accompanied certainly by these symptoms However, of schizophrenia. However, there is another, there is another factor in that, which is that, that these people on, even on ephedrine meth, stay up for days on end and become crazy. Yeah, but that's very different. No, no, no. But that's very different than the, okay. than the P2P meth. Uh, yeah, you stay up for a very long number of days and you begin to see shadow people by the fourth or fifth day. That is not the same thing as we're talking about with, with, with the stuff that accompanies the P2P meth, which is rapid onset, very scary, serious hallucinations and, and that kind of thing very, 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 very quickly. But one, where I was going with that was that what I what I struggled with, what I thought was bizarre and fascinating too, was that I was the one writing this story. I write books. This is something that is part of of every major city, and certainly on the West Coast. It seems to me that the the there's this deep, deep unwillingness to talk about homelessness and drug addiction in the same breath. And so people, they will use these elaborate, awkward phrases like people experiencing homelessness and this kind of thing, but they will not address the issue that seems to me to be foremost in why there's tent cities all up and down um, the streets of Los Angeles and by every freeway off ramp and under every every overpass. I mean, it seemed very strange to me. And I got that from a lot of drug counselors and they'll, they would even on the phone or, or in person, lower their voices when they were telling me this. They would say, you know, nobody wants to make make homeless people feel like they're drug addicts or, or paint them to be drug addicts. And I'm like, well, but I mean, when you when you when you avoid that, when you don't talk about it, when you don't bring it out in public and talk about it, there is no way to get to any policy solutions that makes that make sense. But I was struck because I was the one doing. I couldn't believe it. I'm the one doing this, and yet there's all these reporters who literally almost have to step over this problem as they as they do their jobs or go to work. And there's this 
it's a you know maybe Sim a political correct gay, uh, idea or something. Gay men are experiencing an extraordinary crisis. No one will write about it because it makes gay men to look like drug and sex addicts, and that can't be said. It, right. it, these are obviously I don't want to go there again, but it's it's a woke sensibility that actually is preventing us from seeing reality as it really is. It's 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 obscuring. It's, it's distracting us into areas that we don't need to be distracted, which cannot really be solved anyway, and avoiding what's staring us in the face. Absolutely. And I, I haven't read a single bloody story in the Times Post, any of the major, about the gay male meth crisis. But they won't touch it. Yeah. Occasionally, it'll it'll emerge like in this right. horrible story of this man Ed Buck in in West Hollywood who was literally injecting young men with this to get them addicted to sex to have sex. It's just, it's just one of the most horrifying uh, right. stories. But that's it. They're not going to have another story about that. They're not going to yeah. have how many, how big is this epidemic? I have to ask my doctor. I have to ask around to see where the situation is now. I'm told in London, absolutely every everyone is on this thing. All of it's a huge hush-hush for the mainstream media. So, I mean, I'm grateful for right. you walking in here with big rubber boots on <laughs> and bringing this stuff to the, to the light because <laughs> it, it matters. It bloody matters and i'm tired of the polite ways in which people are talking about that's the inhumanity to to stick with your polite bromides while people are dying in the streets because you don't want to make them feel bad i mean ffs <laughs> absolutely no i think i think that's what struck me too i have to say i was in the middle of writing this and i looked at the newspaper stories a variety of sources on homelessness and you just never see the word methamphetamine never comes up on a rare occasion does it does it come up and it was it was very upsetting you know it's, it's as big a question as as the as as with the effect on meth on on homelessness as big a question is why nobody reports it you know and to me that's a that's a scary thing because it's it's almost like people are self-censoring they're they're biting back on you know it's clear all you'd have to do is walk around Los Angeles city i know best walk around Los Angeles talk to a few people at homeless encampments how much meth is this i walked to this one and guy goes he goes the whole camp is on meth what are you talking about you know and and when you get when you get that idea um, that some things are taboo from talking about that is where i guess I come from another era of journalism where that makes me want to talk about it more. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Not me just too, Sam. silence. I, I, it's amazing to me that the most self-censoring people on the planet are fucking journalists. I mean, what? It's, you're the you're the ones who are supposed to be the ones <laughs> that are actually making trouble, becoming unpopular by airing shit that people do not want to be aired, and yet. This generation of, of, of Ivy League educated woke journalists won't touch anything that would disturb their own narrative. And, and it's, it's, it's maddening, yeah. absolutely maddening. I don't know what to do about it, except yeah. what we're doing about it, Sam, which is talking about this stuff honestly and try and be candid because it matters. There you go. And I am extremely grateful for you coming on and, and hashing some of this stuff out. I, I, I thank you on behalf of the readership too. And I, I do recommend Dreamland. And I do recommend the least of us. Something is happening in this country with addiction, with homelessness, in ways that, and with the general need, the sense that people need these escapes, 
We have to ask, why do they need the escape? How do we provide more meaning? How do we build community? How do we rescue the least of us from the world in which they are most vulnerable to these extraordinarily potent new chemical addictive substances? Thanks for raising the alarm, Sam. I'm sorry that there aren't more of you. Please stay in touch and uh, keep spreading the word and we'll, do. we'll try and move forward. Thank you all for listening. We have ever more exciting guests coming up with lots of different topics. So stick with us. And we do seem to be gaining traffic all the time. It's really encouraging to see every week we seem to be getting more and more people listening. And, and that's been really exciting. So see you all next week on another Dishcast. Thanks a lot, Sam. Adios. Thank you, Andrew.